Welcome to Coach Your Brains Out, the show that explores learning from the top minds in volleyball and beyond. With your hosts, John Mayer, Billy Allen, Andrew Fuller, and Nils Nielsen. All right, we're honored to welcome to the show Dr. Mark Williams, the professor of kinesiology at the University of Utah. Dr. Williams, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks very much for the invitation. Uh, congrats on the new book. You know, it's called The Best, How Elite Athletes Are Made. And it comes out in the U.S., I believe, in early December on paperback. I think it's out now in Kindle. Uh, can you just maybe start out giving us your, your uh, pitch on why coaches should, should get it, should read it? Yeah, uh, as you said, it's, uh, it's out in hardback on the 1st of December in the U.S., but uh, it's available on Kindle and audiobook at the moment. Um, the book looks at uh, how elite athletes are made, as the title suggests, and uh, essentially split into three parts. The first part looks at the role of environmental factors and the development of expertise. So it focuses on topics like the importance of uh, where you're born, when you're born, the role of family, siblings and significant others. It sort of looks at the importance of street sport and talent identification. And then the middle section focuses more on some of the adaptations that occur in the development of expertise uh, such as for instance the development of game intelligence some of the psychological characteristics that underpin expertise uh, and you know the key adaptations that occur as a result of prolonged engagement in sport and then the final section really looks at the role of the of the coach and technology in um, ensuring that the athlete has exposure to the best quality practice in order that the right types of adaptations lead to the development of expertise in the sport. Cool. There is so much to, to cover in this book. We can't do it all here. Um, so we encourage coaches to go buy the book, of course. Uh, but we wanted to start off by talking uh, about this part two of the book called Inside the Mind of a Champion. Um, mm -hmm. a, part of, a part of this chapter covers anticipation, which is, I know, something you've studied a lot. How important is quickness and overall reaction time to anticipating? Uh, reaction time actually isn't that important per se in the sense that reaction time is defined as a response to a novel stimulus, like a flash of light. So what's more important, of course, is the ability to anticipate um, uh, that is the ability of the athlete to be able to read ahead of the actual event what what is going to happen. So anticipation is actually a perceptual cognitive skill, as we call it, rather than a visual skill per se. And clearly, in in, in fast ball sports like volleyball, it's it's a a key part or uh, sort of key component of performance. Um, speed and agility around the course or the court are also very important, of course. And I guess if you're a little bit faster around the court then it means you can probably delay your anticipatory judgment but uh, perception and action or anticipation and movement around the court go hand in hand and both are crucial towards expert performance in volleyball and what are some ways that coaches can help to train anticipating skills yeah i mean there's very little evidence actually to suggest that um there's an exceptionally strong genetic component to the development of these skills. And we know the ability to anticipate comes from the development of knowledge structures, which arise from obviously prolonged engagement in the sport. Um, and there's been some research evidence that highlights, for instance, that the importance, the importance of street sport in the development of game intelligence skill, in that clearly the more often athletes are exposed to these types of 
of realistic match environments where they have to perceive and anticipate, then the better these skills are developed. Um, I mean, clearly over the last three or four decades, science has identified uh, a number of processes that underpin the anticipation process, like for instance, the ability to pick up uh, postural cues from the movements of an opponent, the ability to recognize structure and patterns in the manner in which the offensive team are attacking, uh, and the probabilities of certain shots or actions being taken uh, from different part of the opponent's core. So these are all long-term adaptations that uh, arise through exposure to practice. And I guess from a training perspective, perhaps one of the key issues, I guess, is that practice is uh, relevant and matches the demands of competition as much as possible in that athletes are presented with pretty much the same type of scenarios that they are in match play situations. So really what you don't want to do, for instance, is to isolate technical and tactical skills so that the skills are performed in, uh, in isolation. You really want to try and create realistic training environments uh, which match competition in terms of the, the types of the patterns played, the speed of the game, uh, the impact of stressors like anxiety and fatigue are also very, very important. Uh, <clears throat> oh, sorry, I cut you off, but uh, I was thinking with the street sports, um, I, you know, I love the idea, but a lot of the coaches here listening they make their money off of not having street sports, right? Kids have to sign up and play and have a coach. Yeah. Um, so parents, if you're listening, stop paying for uh, club coaches and go let your kids play on the street. No, but um, as a coach who is, you know, running a practice and, and um, you know, realizes anticipation is important. And I guess I'm wondering, do you want to, you know, tell your athletes, look here, look for these cues. You know, when she drops her shoulder, maybe she won't be able to hit as hard. Is that a way to help them? you know, grow these anticipating skills? I mean, certainly there's evidence to suggest that we can train them in that manner, either on court using um, video simulations of match situations. And I guess most recently, virtual reality is becoming more and more evident, I guess, in high performance sport. So any situation, I guess, where you create the same stimuli as you would see during a match. And clearly there is some evidence to suggest that we can highlight some of these key cues and when that they might be important uh, and also there's some evidence that suggests that we can train these patterns through the use of on-court video vr based training as well um, i suppose it's it's a challenge in some ways though actually because the evidence also highlights the importance of training this these uh, cues in a much more implicit like manner than in an explicit like manner in the sense that um, Whilst there is some value sometimes in using explicit instruction in the sense, watch the body shape and if, if the hip is in that region, then it's tending to go cross court or down the line or whatever. Um, at the same time, these cues are best learned in more guided discovery type manners or implicit like manners where you merely create situations where athletes are required to pick up this information in order to be successful during training. And of course, that's always then a difficult challenge for the coach in the sense of whilst the coach ha certainly has responsibility all the time to create realistic practice situations, it becomes a dilemma on the coach's part in terms of when do I provide explicit information 
and when do I give the athlete a little bit more time to see whether he or she can discover the solution to the problem themselves. I think there was one of the studies I read of yours with tennis players. I think it, it was one that you did on anticipation uh, where uh, the players were trying to predict the speed of the forehand coming at them or the, the mm -hmm. I don't know, whatever, yep. the ball coming at them. And I think one was more prescribed, uh, told maybe how to move. Uh, I can't remember the differences. You could probably clarify. But I'm yeah, wondering, I'm I guess... Yeah, does that, is, is that something we'd want to do? Say, say um, receiving serve in volleyball, mm -hmm. you know, maybe asking the players to, you know, if we have a speed gun, um, ask them to try to say what the speed of the serve was. Or, would that be helpful? Well, in that particular study, actually, we just asked them to perceive whether the tennis forehand drive was going to go cross court or down the line. Okay. So we didn't actually ask them to judge ball velocity per se. And yeah, we did have uh, two groups, one that, um, trained implicitly or in more implicit like manner in that we told them to for instance look out in the midriff to see whether they could tell the difference in the postural cues between a cross cut and the down the line shot whereas the other group was a lot more explicit in that we said to them you know look at the hip region look at the angle of the hip when it's going cross court down the line um, look at the rotation at the trunk etc so that, in essence, they did create a series of if-then-do rules about how they would anticipate whether the shot was going to go cross-court or down the line. And if you do give explicit instruction, um, performance improves more rapidly in the particular coaching session. But the paradox is that, rather ironically, learning is better if we are less explicit in the manner in which we provide instruction. So the group that had merely been guided towards the midriff rather than to specific cues, for instance, did better on a retention test, which is a measure of learning, and also did better when they were um, exposed to anxiety in a, in a retention test. Uh, because, of course, if you've not learned the skill through a series of if-then-do rules, then you're not sort of pushed by the anxiety to try and memorize those rules during performance which kind of can lead to some kind of paralysis by analysis and do you think the the augmented feedback like a speed gun is helpful or is that too much like i don't know trying to think about something that maybe is uh i don't know uh, maybe just distracting them from performing the skill yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not aware of any research that has actually looked at ball velocity per se yeah. um, as a cue. I mean, mostly they've focused on body shape and okay. the movement of, of the opponent. Um, so as to whether there would be value in recording ball velocity and giving them that as a source of, as you said, augmented feedback, don't know really it's quite an interesting question okay. i suppose the question is how important is it to pick up ball velocity as much yeah. as it is to pick up direction um spin where relevant for instance right right okay sounds good mm. there's a study in there somewhere i'm sure yeah that's uh, i'm trying to figure out ways uh, we, we were messing around with it a little bit with our team but then like uh trying to figure out uh you know always wondering is what i'm doing helping them um so basically, I'm just asking you to create a study to tell me uh, if what I'm doing is right or wrong. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, you know, firstly, the, the key priority is to create practice sessions that are realistic in terms right. of requiring the athlete to pick up these sources of information. 
um, right. as implicitly as possible. And, and clearly, there may be some value in explicitly guiding the the players to be aware of certain information cues, mm. whether that's from the opponent's posture or whether it's the attacking shape or sequence used by the opponents. There's certainly some value in that, but clearly we don't want to be too prescriptive in providing with, with information. So there's a delicate balance. Right. And then once a player is better at noticing those cues, is there a more helpful time for them to remind themselves or for a coach to remind them to look for them, um, you know, whether before a game or during and throughout the game? I mean, mostly these skills are developed over a prolonged period of time, certainly in elite athletes, and uh, they do um, get relegated to a fairly implicit level. So this type of information will always be accessible to the athlete. I mean, I guess if a particular opponent has some idiosyncrasies in technique that you may wish to highlight, then I guess you could do that prior to a game, for sure. It may be worth being aware of those sources of but you know these skills are acquired over years of practice 10 years 10,000 hours plus so to speak rather than <clears throat> necessarily being uh, acquired over relatively short periods of time so then in the book you referenced the study from from baseball that observed gaze behavior between the novice I think it was novice hitters and, and experts and the novices focus on a wide variety of areas maybe the the hips, the, I don't know, they're just kind of all over the place with their, their gaze and where mm. the experts were really steady and on fewer locations. So I guess, why do you think the steady fixated gaze is important for expert performance? Well, I mean, experts uh, use vision, of course, is probably the, the king or queen of the senses, as they say, and vision is, is by far the most dominant sense. And Experts use the visual system in a much more effective and efficient manner to extract information from the display. And of course, from a research perspective, we can measure that through uh, gaze recording. So we can actually locate where the performer is fixating his or her eyes. Um, typically, experts do have more efficient and more effective gaze behaviors than less expert performers. But really the specific gaze pattern used is very task situation and context specific so sometimes for instance by way of example if you're a, a central defender in soccer and you're on the edge of your penalty area and the ball's on the halfway line then typically defenders have lots of fixations of short duration trying to make themselves aware of the runs and movements of players off the ball and it may well be in volleyball for instance that if the player is at the back of the court and has the whole court in front of them then he or she may be using lots of fixations to try and make themselves aware of where every single player on the other side of the court is but then at other times they tend to have fewer fixations of longer duration um, most likely what they're doing there is they're fixating gaze centrally either on the ball or a specific cue and then using peripheral vision to try and record movement. So in other words, the, the eye movement recorder actually only measures what central or foveal vision is doing. But in high performance sport, the central vision and peripheral vision interact dynamically to determine performance. And you can certainly see that in volleyball, for instance, where if you're up at the net, 
then you don't always have time to fixate on certain cues. So what you might do is, is anchor vision on one area that allows you then to use peripheral vision to pick up a broader range of movement. Um, and there's evidence to suggest also that we can pick up information through peripheral vision faster than we can through foveal or central vision. Mm. So it's, I guess it's always more nuanced than I realized, but I, I, when I see these studies and I've seen some of these pictures where they show, you know, where the gaze is and experts and novices, it's, you know, on the, it seems like they're on the cues that are most important. So in my head as a coach, I'm like, okay, I just, you know, if my players aren't picking up on cues or maybe reading the game a little bit slower, then I should show them this picture. This is where experts look, you know, uh, how about you try looking there too? But then when I think about it more, you know, you know, I'm guessing these experts don't even realize that they're implicitly doing it. So I guess, would you refrain from oversharing this sort of information and, and let them kind of implicitly learn it? Well, uh, I think there's certainly value. I mean, we can, of course, record gaze behaviors on call. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think it would certainly be interesting to look at some of the difference between elite and less elite volleyball players in terms of the gaze behaviors that we use. And, uh, you know, when they have lots of fixations of short duration and when they have few fixations of long duration, in other words, when they're using central and, and orbital vision. And also it's fascinating how that might, um, how the use of those two subsystems, foveal and peripheral vision, might be impacted by stressors like fatigue or anxiety, for instance, mm. uh, or the nature of the opponents that, that they're actually playing against. So we can certainly measure those. And certainly players will adapt and develop more appropriate gaze behaviours uh, as they acquire more experience in the process of anticipation. But clearly there have been studies that highlight that we can train these kinds of gaze behaviours as well. And there have been a number of studies of the type that you articulated a minute ago where people have used video feedback of their gaze behaviours to try and... Um, uh, modify the gaze behaviors that players use in, in certain types of situations uh, and there's also been some interesting stuff on the quiet eye familiar with the quiet mm -hmm. eye which yeah. is the final fixation on the target uh, prior to the initiation of an action and there's been there's been some work John Vickers did a study out of the University of Calgary where she trained volleyball players to have a longer quiet eye fixation on the ball uh, early during serve reception so, so there's been some evidence that shows both the trainability of the quiet eye and the trainability of anticipation skills using sort of gaze behaviors and video-based information. So yeah, you said there's a way to measure it, the gaze behavior and maybe the quiet eye. Is it you need these like $30,000 glasses to do it or is there a way that we can practically, you know, buy something or, or do it in a way that, you know, coaches who maybe don't have the resources of a lab uh, yeah, to measure it accurately, yes, you're probably right. $30,000 is probably a good estimate for an eye tracking system. We're in the wrong sport with $30,000 with volleyball. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I mean, you can get some indication, actually. There have been some studies in the past that I've just used a video camera and mm -hmm. looked at the head movements and, where possible, the eye movements of perform performers. There's been a lot of uh, interesting work recently in soccer, for instance, where... Um, uh, Gir Jordet and his colleagues from uh, the Norwegian Institute of Sport have been tracking head movements of offensive players in soccer using video camera footage and then looking at the frequency of head movements relative to 
the quality of ball reception and forward offensive passes. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, that's obviously a lot cheaper uh, and there may be some value in that, although you probably don't get the degree of head rotation in volleyball that you might do in soccer, for instance, because I guess in soccer you're probably rotating your head sometimes in a 360-degree image, yeah. whereas I guess in volleyball it's everything's in front of you pretty much but even okay. so there may be some benefits in doing that i don't know anybody's done it but might be some value nice um i know we you mentioned it pretty fast but for our listeners who don't know can you go into the quiet eye and what that maybe looks like in terms of volleyball serve receive versus an amateur who's a little more jumpy yeah the original work was done with uh, basketball players in the free throw shot and what was found was that uh, skilled free throw shooters had a a longer quiet eye. So the quiet eye was maintaining a foveal fixation on the front of the rim, for instance, for a longer period of time prior to the initiation of action. Um, from a volleyball perspective, I well, you'd have to revert back to the original paper by Vickers, I guess, as to where they were fixating gaze, but presumably it was either in the general hitting space where the ball and the hand connect, or I guess they were tracking the ball or they were tracking the hand. But similarly, there is some evidence to suggest that a longer quiet eye, a more stable eye was, uh, was evidenced in, um, in volleyball as well. Although I can't off the top of my head recall specifically where they were fixating. <coughs> and it seems to be well correlated to performance at varying levels. Such that, for instance, in, in basketball, free throw and shotgun shooting, um, even if you look within participant, um, you know, on, on a successful shot, the quiet eye is, is a lot longer than it is on less successful shots within the same athlete. And I've heard that uh, baseball studies, like they've used colored balls and asked hitters to call out the color uh, when they're swinging. Do you think something like that could be, you know, maybe coloring the panels of a volleyball could be effective in reading serve receive or digging a, a spike in volleyball? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, um, I guess interesting questions that come to mind is, what are the differences in gaze behavior between skilled and less skilled volleyball players, for instance, mm. in serve reception? To what extent are most of the differences evident prior to ball hand contact by the opponent so that they're picking up these postural cues, using these probabilities of where the serve may go? So that is very much an anticipatory process. And then at a secondary level, to what extent are they actually picking up information from ball flight? are they just tracking the first portion of ball flight or are they tracking the ball virtually across the net um, I mean certainly in faster ball sports like baseball and cricket the evidence suggests that um, skilled batters don't really track the ball for, for that long a period of time and in fact the closer the ball gets to the batter then the harder it is to actually track the ball physically because the eyes don't move fast enough ball velocity so I, I don't know the answer specifically to that question actually um, I mean clearly coloring the ball or putting different color patches on it may attract a player to fixate for longer on the ball 
but whether that is necessarily efficient in terms of improving performance or not, I really wouldn't know without sort of collecting some gaze data and actually looking at differences between those who are good and not so good at that particular task. Um, my gut feeling probably is that being able to, to tell the make of the ball, for instance, or the type of stitches on the ball probably isn't that important because in essence, the ball is coming towards you and probably in the latter half, you're tracking it through peripheral vision. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't think you need that sort of highly acute vision of the ball per se. Well, we're going to have you um, out to LA to do some volleyball studies uh, here soon. So, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, that's helpful for you to break these down. So, I, I found one part in the book about the the tennis players grunting louder because they knew it obscure the the crucial information of the the sound of the swing. Uh, yeah. Really fascinating because first it shows elite athletes are are attuned to you know these little details and and how important they are. But I also hadn't thought as much about the auditory um, part of the game um, and how, how it is uh, an aspect of, of uh, reacting uh, to stimulus. So I guess, um, should coaches be bringing this you know, auditory awareness to players? You know, did you notice the sound of when they hit it fast or when they hit it slow, things like that? Well, sport is a, obviously uses all the senses, even though vision is by far the most dominant, as I suggested previously. But um only in the last decade or so have people started to use or to look specifically at uh, auditory information and clearly in, in sports like tennis it seems that the auditory information is important for deception and also that players use the sound of the ball on the racket to be able to judge the depth of the opponent's shot and one of the main characteristics of expertise i guess is that they can use experts can use multiple sources of to solve the same problem to a degree of perceptual redundancy uh, and that's not just in terms of vision and audition but for instance proprioception so visual proprioception is is if i move my hand around in front of my face here i mean obviously i can see my hand in vision but also if i shut my eyes i know where my hand is in space because i'm using articular proprioception and experts are better at using proprioceptive information to orientate the hands as well um, there have certainly been examples in training, for instance, where people have occluded sight of the limbs such that it encourages them to use proprioceptive information to orientate the body relative to the approaching ball rather than to use vision. Therefore, it frees up vision, for say, to focus on external things like where to play the return shot. So, um, yeah, I think certainly encouraging athletes to use a variety of different sensory sources of information by exaggerating or removing some sources of sensory information may well be sort of reasonably effective coaching methods. There's some evidence of that um, in the literature. So something like maybe loud, no, loud music at practice, so you can't get the auditory, uh, you know, sounds of a pass or a swing might tune them into others, might heighten other senses. Is that kind of the idea if you try to take one away, another sense? Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you're shifting the focus. If you're preventing them from using one source of information, then obviously they then have to, to become more refined at using the remaining source of information that are still available. Um, and of course, training under loud noise and things of that nature has benefits anyway, because mostly competition. 
Mm -hmm. well, certainly prior COVID when we had crowds, yeah. uh, you know, crowd noise and distractions were, were an integral element of sports performance. And, um, uh, learning to deal with those those distractions when you're fatigued and anxious is uh, an important part of being successful. Right. And in the book, you wrote about how successful athletes uh, use deception effectively. And there was one line, uh, you say, con artists give themselves more time to make a decision because defenders are slower to react. Um, what do you think about players that have like strive for perfect form and maybe more predictable technique would you think that could be a possible hindrance when it comes to other like their defenders reading them because they've seen it before yeah yeah great great question um i mean there are some advantages of course in in baseball for instance it's quite quite commonly the pitchers talk about funneling and in funneling what you might do for instance is the early part of the technique looks absolutely identical uh, and that, in essence, the changes only appear right in the latter end uh, of the action. So that then it becomes very hard for someone to discriminate between a shot that's played to one part of the court or another because the, the entire action looks the same. So I, I certainly think there are benefits in creating techniques that are very subtle in regards to... Um, the end destination of the ball. Um, yeah, in, it's a, a fascinating question in terms of the relative advantages of having a so-called classic textbook technique or a rather idiosyncratic technique in terms of which would be easier for an opponent to perceive or not. Don't know, I don't, I'm not aware of any research work on that, but certainly I think um, trying to either hide your cues or disguise the key cues as long as possible, or of course, to make the opponent think that you're gonna play the ball to one part of the court while quickly changing movement the very last minute and directing it elsewhere are, are clearly two important skills of um, high-level performance. And John, Which is, I guess, the flip side of the coin. I mean, I must confess, most of the research has tended to look at anticipation mm -hmm. and how skilled athletes anticipate. But yeah, the other side of the coin, of course, is how do we facilitate deception and disguise in elite athletes, which is an equally important skill. Because John, skills. when he played, he was left-handed and funky, so he was really hard to read what he was doing. Smart. Yeah, well, well, in the book, uh, as you might have read, I mean, there's quite a lot of evidence around the left-handed advantage. I love that part. And, uh, <laughs> you know, one of the key issues perhaps is that in most sports, athletes get less exposure to left-handers, uh, therefore making them harder to read and to anticipate. Uh, so that seems to be a fairly resilient finding across a range of different sports. It wasn't that I was good. I was left-handed. So that's yeah. yeah. That's <laughs> uh, better to be good and left-handed. There you go. That's, that's, what I <laughs> that's part one of our interview with Dr. Mark Williams. Join us next week for more and be sure to pick up his book, The Best, How Elite Athletes Are Made.